Failure at 40. Failure at 40. Can you still be fulfilled at 40 without the partner, without the children, the career, or the beautiful home, all in the picture? Failure at 40 interviews, debates, and discusses the reality of turning 40. Very um, wise person said, well, 40, happy birthday, is this is the age of fulfillment. Failure at 40. When you turn 40, you have, you know, you have a path that you've already walked. You've, you, you have some perspective, uh, you know things a little more. Failure at 40. Failure at 40 challenges the notion of failure and redefines what success looks like to you. Who says if you haven't reached all of your goals by 40 that you are not a success? Failure at 40 interviews, debates and discusses the reality of turning 40 in modern Britain. Welcome. Welcome back to Failure at 40. I'm Lee, the producer. And I'm Shadi, the life coach. And today we're speaking to Valeria Villagra. Valeria is 40, she has a six-year-old daughter, is married and lives in South London. Welcome to the podcast, Valeria. Thanks for joining us today. Welcome to the show, Valeria. Pleasure to have you on today. Thank you, Shelley. Thank you for having me. Thank you, Weenie. Thank you, Stephen. You're very welcome. It's great to have you with us. If we can take you back to your 20s, maybe uh, late 20s, early 30s, a time when you were planning um, your future and you had hopes and aspirations of what your future might look like. How did you envision your life to be at 40? What, what did you think you would be doing? Where would you be living? What, what, did, what picture did you have in your brain of what, of what you at 40 would look like? Wow, I think maybe I lacked imagination because I didn't even imagine getting to 40. <laughs> I oh, just, really? Yeah, I don't know. It's like for some reason my dreams of uh, it just ended somewhere around mid-30s. Um, uh, no, for no particular reason. I just didn't picture it, what, what it would be like to be 40. I guess it just seemed extremely old. And right now I feel like I'm that same, you know, 18 or 20-year-old actually. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. And what what did you think of by that time? What did 30 look like to you, I guess? I thought I would be settled. I thought I would be on, on track to something somewhere. I didn't have a, a specific idea aside of I want to travel a lot. That's what I wanted to know. I wanted to um, live somewhere else, travel, um, earn money. I just wanted to make some money and, uh, and just meet lots of people. I didn't have a clear career or anything. I just, all putting all these things together, it just brought me to studying business pretty much. So can you tell us a little bit about maybe where you're from, you know, what those very early years were like, sibling groups, if you've got brothers and sisters, where you've grown up? Um, and what life was like growing up for you? So I grew up in Paraguay. I, I was born in Paraguay and I lived there until I was 20. Um, I speak Spanish. That's my mother tongue. Um, growing up, um, I grew up in a very middle, upper class family. It was comfortable financially, but with a lot of um, emotional and mental issues on the other side. Um, so my eldest brother is bipolar and has schizoaffective uh, disorder. So he does go into psychotic, psychotic episodes and so on. And that started when I was 11. So it did have a big influence in my life. And, um, and it, it affected my whole family as well. My parents um, are divorced. They divorced when I was around five. But my father was always involved in my life. Um, 
I had another brother, a middle brother. Um, so he's my, my my brothers are ten years, seven years older than me. The seven year, the one that's seven years older than me, I'm not in touch with anymore. So I said before, my family's a little bit uh, dysfunctional, a little bit difficult uh, childhood on the one side, but on the other side, I think it was also very happy. Um, there were there were good things, good friends, good uh, connections. So is that just a three, is that the three of you? There, so two brothers. So three siblings, yeah. Okay, and stayed in Paraguay until you were 20 and then moved. And where did you move afterwards? Yeah, so I stayed in, in Paraguay until I was uh, 20. Then I moved to the Netherlands for my studies. Um, I had been there for one year on exchange already. So I, I learned the language. I learned Dutch when I was 17. Um, and then I moved for university. I stayed there altogether five years. I also lived in Italy for six months as part of my studies. I did an internship in Italy in Genoa. And um, and through moving to Europe, actually, because Paraguay is a, is a Spanish-speaking country. And it's landlocked and it's surrounded by other speaking, Spanish speaking countries and, and Brazil, Portuguese. Um, but you don't use languages much. And, but then living in the Netherlands, I realized that I had a knack for languages and, and, uh, and that also started filling in the picture for my future, I guess. Did you always want to move? I mean, because of some of the things that were happening within your family, did that propel your want to leave and to travel? Yes, I just didn't see myself. I guess that's that going back to Winnie's question on, you know, did I see myself at 40? I didn't. All I, knew, all I knew was I had to get out. I had to make my life elsewhere. I had to, I had to find my own way because I had no idea of imagining myself in Paraguay just because of, of, of my family situation more than anything. I just didn't see how to dis, de, detangle myself from that. Were there any expectations of you from your family? Have they... Um, hopes that you would be a particular career or or did, 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 was there any pressure from them to follow yeah up? so yeah there were actually a lot of pressures always from from my family especially given that my eldest brother couldn't you know become a professional couldn't look after himself essentially and my other brother just didn't care basically I guess that was his way of reacting to the whole situation he just was kind of you know the rebel and the the one always causing trouble if you like so yes I was kind of in that sense like the eldest child that you know I had to do well I had to represent I had to behave I had to be all the things that they didn't do yeah and and I did manage but away and in my own way what what kind of impact did that pressure have on you growing up in terms of your own expectations for yourself? Well, that, it, it did have a lot of impact in the sense that it, it formed good things and bad things in me. So it instilled a very uh, strong work ethic um, on the one si- side, but on the other side, a level of perfectionism that it's not healthy and that I only you know, started to manage probably when my father died. Um, my father committed suicide 11 years ago and uh, after being a very successful business person, but very unsuccessful personally, very unhappy, uh, I suppose. Um, my mother was his first wife. He went on to have two more uh, wives, no more families, no more children. Um, but I guess all of that, um, as difficult as it was, it helped me also to 
look at myself. It helped me to, to understand that I can't keep going the way that I was going, constantly, constant, constantly beating myself up, which is what I always do whenever I'm tired, whenever, whenever I'm sick, whenever I'm in a weak spot, my first reaction is beating myself up everything I do is wrong, etc. So I had to learn to, to, to deal with that. So you're quite hard on yourself is what, what I'm, I'm very, hearing. Yeah. And is that what sort of forged you to do so well in your careers, I guess, because you have got that worth ethic where you're able to kind of push forward, um, even at your own demise. Exactly. It's a double-edged sword because at one point you don't realize when it's to your detriment to have that constant negative talk in your head all the time. Uh, it, 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 it stops you from being what you can be because you're constantly second-guessing yourself. You're constantly criticizing yourself. You never give yourself credit for anything. What I was going to say to you, one thing um, that I kind of understand about mental health is the impact that it sometimes has on children in the home. So even though the children might not have, like yourself as a sibling who doesn't necessarily have a diagnosis, you may also be impacted um, in so many different ways by those mental um, issues that are going on within the home. To the point that now as an adult, you may have also picked up coping mechanisms that cope, worked well for you younger, but actually are detrimental to you now as an adult. And I was just wondering what you use for coping mechanisms then and how that translates now in your adulthood. Um, so I guess uh, the coping me- mechanisms was just going completely into myself. I, I became very independent and self-reliant. And again, to the point that sometimes I don't ask for help when I should be asking for help. I started controlling or trying to control food. <laughs> that was my other coping mechanism. Um, it doesn't work very well. I love eating. So it goes both ways. It goes between not eating at all to eating way too much. And I think those probably are my main, were my main coping mechanisms. Uh, and then, like I said before, the, the, the negative self-talk, always wondering why I didn't do better, why, why I didn't do something better instead of just looking at what I actually did and just saying, well, well done um for doing that which is something that i learned probably in the last 10 years or so um through a lot of therapy <laughs> mostly started with the with the, um, um how do you call it the um, the grieving therapy after losing my father and working through all that out and and that led me to other types of 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 therapy to understand we know why i am the way that i am so yeah i think um now the, the what I can see is a difference in the sense that I am much more aware of things. I um, I'm not uh, self-critical. I don't voice things, even if I am self-critical. I especially think constantly of of my daughter, my six-year-old daughter Olivia, not to pass these, you know. Um, neurotic things onto her i don't want to pass all these you know any food issues any negative self-talk to her and so you know i i always make it a point i never say you know i'm in front of her oh god my my butt looks huge in this or you know my <laughs> look at this jelly belly things that i constantly think about and then my husband is like oh my god please don't talk about it anymore <laughs> don't want to hear it but in front of her definitely i don't um i don't do any of these things or or the self-criticism i just don't do it although the other day i did realize that we were trying to work out a way to 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 teach her uh, subtraction she's doing she's in year two she's learning subtraction and I was getting frustrated with myself because I didn't know how to explain it 
to the point that I was really losing patience. And then I asked her, do you ever get, you know, upset with yourself when you don't get something right? And she just looked at me and she was like, no. I was like, oh my God, that's fantastic. Well Not done. me, mom. Not me. <laughs> I don't care. <laughs> Which is great. I think it's good. Yeah. Um, Valeria, I was wondering um, how old you were when you realized the mental issues with your dad. Can, can you remember like the age of consciousness that, that happened and, and how that shaped your view of your, your world? So I did, I wasn't aware that he had any issues as such. I mean, like I said, I think there's a history of, of, you know, dysfunction in my family. And even though, for example, my mother has never been diagnosed with anything, I, you know, given, you know, how well I know her and I love her very much, it's, she is essentially narcissistic. And I, I know enough of her background as well to understand where that comes from. But so I grew up with all of that. You don't know better. You don't know. I didn't know my father. Um, you know, he did have some aspects of, you know, being bipolar, as in, you know, very active periods where with periods where he was a bit down. But again, this is, you know, somebody who's very, you know, very hardworking, very driven. Um, he had his own business that he built from the ground up. And after he had died, I even found papers that in the in the 90s, his company was worth $1 million. So this is, you know, amazing. This is Paraguay, so the, one of the poorest countries in, in South America. Um, so you almost think, well, he works extremely hard. Of course, he's going to have some down periods, exhausted, fatigue, responsibilities. So I didn't know better, to be honest. These things got worse uh, when I was already in Europe. So I'd been here for about, I think, 10 years. I truly noticed something was wrong probably a year before he started his attempts because it took him a few attempts to reach his goal over a period of about a year. And the last time I did see him myself, I did notice a huge change. He seemed to have aged in the sense that he wasn't energetic. He wasn't outgoing because he was a very sociable, outgoing person. He didn't want to see his friends. He didn't like loud noises. And that's when I truly became aware that I was 28 by then already. And I guess you were old enough at that point to recognize what it was. I, yes, well, um... I didn't, to be honest. I had seen him because every time I went to visit back then, I, I did at the most two week, a two-week trip because I was working. You can only take two weeks at a time, really. So I, I, would do two, I would see him a few times and come back. And then that last time that I saw him, he had, after I had left, about two days later, he started his suicide attempts. Uh, and, uh, well, then it was, you know, as clear as day what was happening. And um, no no real way of knowing how to manage it either. Even, you know, his psychiatrist at one point told me, we can do certain things, we can try certain medication, we can try certain courses of treatment, but at the end of the day, he has to want to live. And he didn't anymore. I, I only ask that because it's clear you're really conscious of how your own behavior affects your daughter's view of herself and the world. Um, so you're, you're obviously very conscious of, of how you are as a parent in her eyes so she's not affected but do you feel like you were affected in that um family setup where you had 
Yes, very much. And uh, and in that sense, I think it's such a great time nowadays to, you know, to have dealt with these things because people talk about mental health issues. They talk about these things. And I'm from, you know, obviously I'm 40. I'm from the 80s. You didn't talk about mental health and you didn't deal with any of these things um, that were presented in my family unless they were so dramatic as in my brother that he was, you know, his own self. One day he had, um, he was, I think, 21. Um, he went to study English in Boston in the U.S. for a couple of months and he completely spun out of control then. And he had a, a psychotic episode. So this is what mental health, you know, mental illness looked back then. You know, something, somebody that completely loses it, you know, has uh, hallucinations, uh, visual, auditory, everything, olfactory, everything, because he saw things and everything. And that's the only way that you understood it. You didn't understand the nuances. You didn't understand that mental illness and mental health is on a spectrum as we do now. And the stigma has changed so much from the, from the 80s till now. And I think people's understanding of mental health um, and the education of it is so much more widespread um, uh, and you can get more information. I think there's more said about it in terms of people understanding what it means for somebody to live with mental health or to live with somebody who has mental health um, and then how to seek support for it. Um, and I think that's probably one of the good things about the time we're living in now is that it is spoken about in much more of an understanding way that actually anybody can have positive or negative mental health, you know, absolutely anybody. Um, and most of us, you know, who are seen to be having, you know, good mental health actually probably can slide up and down the scale any given time, depending on what life throws at you. Um, and the more people understand that, um, I think the better we can support other people going through those things from my point of view. So what does life look like for you now at 40? Um, tell us a bit about where you're at now. Um, obviously, we know you've got a beautiful daughter, Olivia. Um, but just tell us about other things that are happening in your life at 40. Yes, I'm married. I've been married um, for, I'm trying to think, um, uh, 16 years, actually. In July, it was 16 years. In Halloween, uh, I would have been together with my husband for, um, God, ages even more than that so uh, i got very lucky with that uh, thankfully for my husband is french dutch um he grew up in actually west africa in senegal and in burkina faso he's um uh, he's a lovely man he's a good father um he is um let's be very cheesy he is my rock but no he's he's um he understands me and he's uh, he's my best friend at the end of the day he grew up in senegal you say Yes, he's, he grew up in, in Burkina Faso in Senegal, yes. So is that where his, were his parents working there or were they from there originally? How did that come about? Um, so, yeah, so his father is Dutch and his mother is French. And they were, I think, I think they started off as volunteers for the Dutch government. And, and then his father had a job uh, basically re uh, do you say that replanting the Sahara, the Sahel region? So he's, uh, he specializes in, in reforesting. Um, so they, they lived uh, in that area always until he was 17. And then, um, although my husband was born in the Netherlands, because I think there was a yellow fever epidemic or something. So he was born in the Netherlands, but then he was, um, he lived uh, since, you know, he was six, six weeks old until he was um, 17 in uh, Senegal and Burkina Faso. And then went back to the Netherlands and met you in the Netherlands or did you meet him in the UK? 
Uh, no, I met him in the Netherlands in university in actually what would have been his hometown if he ever li lived there before. And, um, and yeah, I met his uh, parents eventually and his family. And uh, one of the best things of that is knowing that, you know, that there are families that, you know, love each other very much. And uh, even if they don't see eye to eye, they're always, you know, they always at least try and, and make a real effort of staying kind to each other, which is, you know, probably the biggest lesson that I uh, learned from him and his family. It's amazing. That's how they you know, really welcomed you in, which um, is important, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, they're, they're lovely people. And, um, and, the, and then uh, life, well, I've been, uh, I worked in London. London has been also, I think, amazing and my home to me, really, for the past uh, 16 years. Uh, I had opportunities here that I never dreamed of. Um, as soon as I moved here with, with my then fiancé, um, and then we got married, I got a job in the city and I didn't even know anything about you know the area of finance that people live deal with in, in London in capital markets and so on but luckily my languages helped and you know I just took off from there um, I had I've met amazingly clever people and interesting people and I've traveled a lot um, I've covered the whole of Western Europe in terms of my institutional clients. Um, I learned things that I never thought I would learn. I'm not a particularly um, numerical or mathematical person, but I had to deal a lot in, in financial models and things like that. So that was very interesting for a long time until um, it diminished over the last two years, let's say. And then I started looking at other possibilities and I decided to keep using my languages. They've always served me well. So I'm going to train to become a freelance translator and work for myself. Failure at 40. Failure at 40. How do you feel about looking at all of that now and, and turning 40 this year? How do you feel about where you are at the moment in life? I, I have to say I, I, I'm very happy, actually. I am incredibly lucky. I don't think 10 years ago I would have imagined that I would be this happy and grateful and healthy as well i didn't i i would not have imagined that for a second 10 years ago and now um you know things are are probably never perfect and never you know as good as you wish you, they could be in your dreams but we have everything we need we have each other we're healthy um we have a healthy family dynamic um we look after each other we have similar priorities and by that i mean is given my situation with my family in paraguay my husband is my and my daughter are my my family the ones that i focus and, and look after um, so if our priorities are, are you know, aligned and, and we're working, pushing towards the same direction, then it's all good. And when did you say that you met your husband? Did you say it was 16 years ago? No, that's when we married 16 years ago. I actually met him 20 years ago. 20 years ago. And did you, did you, when you met him, did you think he was the one for you? Did you feel there was any pressure for you to need to get married at that time? Or did you kind of think, actually, we're just going to maybe just see how this goes? Yeah, there wasn't, no, not at all, actually. There was, I even remember how I met him because we were in the third year of university and I was 100% sure that he was an exchange student. So I just introduced myself. He said, oh, he looks cute. So I introduced myself and he said, so what's your name? And he's like, you've known me for three years. <laughs> My name is so-and-so. And he was so rude. 
And I was like, and then I don't know, for some reason that day he must have been grumpy because the day, you know, weeks, uh, you know, passed and he would always smile at me and say, hi, I'm like, what is this idiot looking at? Why is he being friendly now? <laughs> he, he clearly blossomed. He blossomed during the last few years and he caught, he caught your eye. This happens. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It can happen, yeah. Um, but yeah, so no, I never would have thought so. Um, I think, you know, how how things develop with us was very organic. Uh, we were studying together. Then at one point, things weren't working out for him. He finished uh, university a little earlier than me, a semester earlier. And he wasn't finding a job in the Netherlands. And um, so, you know, we just came up with a plan. Well, let's try London. You know, neither of us was willing to move either to you know west africa which is what he would have wanted or south america which is where i would have wanted so we looked around europe and a middle ground as well i think as i said languages that are very important to us and it had to be also a common language not his language french or dutch or my language spanish so we had to find again english and it makes sense to come to london did you, do you ever feel any pressures at all, societal pressures at all, to need to be in a relationship or to, to have um, Olivia by a certain age? Um, or did you feel by the time you had her that you were having her later on in life, too late? How did that feel for you? Um, not at all, actually. I, um, you know, probably 15 years ago, if you would have asked me, I would not... I, did not think that I was capable of, of having children in the sense that I didn't think I would have been capable of having a, you know, a healthy, functional child or a healthy, functional, functional family life. Um, so again, I think the whole process actually of my father's death triggered a lot of things, a lot of bad things and a lot of good things. And, um, and eventually I did come to the conclusion that I did want a child. Um, and I was, I think, 33 by then. And uh, my husband, Matt, was just of the thought, you know, yeah, I would like children someday. But, you know, if it doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. He's very much like that, you know, um, just chilled, relaxed, things happen for a reason kind of person. Um, but I wasn't. So when I did feel ready that I think that I, we could do this in a, in a healthy way, then, yeah. It happened, but no, no pressure at all. Yes, of course. Uh, I mean, people in Paraguay constantly asked me if I wanted children and, and uh, my mother too, uh, and so on. But I always felt very strange trying to explain that I didn't feel capable of having a child. It just feel very, felt, felt very strange. Until I saw my very best friend from childhood with her baby, and that triggered something in me, because also she said it so simply. I, I said, you know, how, how are you doing this? Because she had her second by then. I think she was 32. And she was like, we just have them, and you love them, and that's it. And that, to me... <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's all you need to do and I know it's simple but it never clicked with me until then well I mean it, it I've got a six child and it'll never feel simple to me it always feels like it's busy at all times but definitely I feel like if you come through a period where your situation feels like okay I'm not sure if I'd want to bring children to the situation then I could see why you might want to question what you might think you were capable of providing yeah, at that time, you know, so good that you've got close friends who were able to give you, you know, or show you a good kind of situation and give you that motivation. 
Oh yeah, definitely. I think, I think when when whenever you don't have you know the ideal family relationship, your nuclear family, your friends become you know the family that you choose. They yeah they they mean they mean the world to me. Valeria, I wanted to know what would you tell your younger self, knowing the things that you know now, and just looking back to that little girl in Paraguay, you know the young lady that travelled through the Netherlands to Italy and did all these things, got married and had a child. What would you tell your younger self now? Um, well, that it's so much better than you could ever imagine. Um, it's not, it's not as bad. The world is not as dark a place as it seems. Um, of course it is, but it's not, there is a future out there. Um, just try and be brave. Um, just keep going. You're going to meet amazing people, be open uh, and be open. Most of all, I think, you know, it's good not to trust people, obviously, too much, but people are a lot better than we give them credit for. There are a lot of kind people out there who are just, you know, happy to to be good people, not, you know, not, not, uh, not hurt anyone uh, who are just there living their own lives, just like all of us. And, um, and I just wanted to say, uh, when, when I turned 40, my father-in-law, who is a very, very um, wise person, said, well, 40, happy birthday, is, this is the age of fulfillment. And, and that was such a wonderful message, I thought, uh, because it is true, when you turn 40, you have, you know, you have a path that you've already walked, you've, you, you have some perspective, uh, you know things a little more. And you're still young enough, strong enough, and now also with the benefit of hindsight to go for another, hopefully at least 40 years, you know, go, keep going strong and learning. Absolutely. And I guess something that kind of um, resonates with me and stands out to me about you, uh, Valeria, is just the, you know, you've come along to 40 and not only have you gone through those challenges, but you've then changed careers you know and that's another huge thing you know that we do in life that people don't always give credit for but it's very difficult um, at different ages to change careers and I think you you've done that and really taken it by the horns and just said yeah but I'm going to make this change can you tell us a little bit about that yes yeah, so um so I guess I like I said before, in my 20, you know, in, you know, 15 years, or I should say more like 16 years um, experience in the city taught me a lot of great things, a lot of good things. And it also taught me what I don't like anymore and what I, you know, what I want out of life for the next, hopefully at least 20 years, maybe 30 years of active work life. And is that, you know, not constantly be stressed and unhappy and constantly be dealing with um with with, with the stress of things that are not life on the, or, or death but are you know paint as, as if um when really what matters at the end of the day is not to live to work but work to live at the end of the day it just it just pays the bills and what matters is that you're there for your family and that you're healthy and that you're happy and that you're you know okay with yourself that you're at peace with yourself and I guess the interesting thing is sometimes we're, we're kind of sold or pushed this notion that when you get to a certain age, you should be quite um, solidified in certain things, particularly your career, you know, and changing a career and not really necessarily knowing how that might turn out. It, it can sometimes appear like it's frowned upon. But I guess 
at the moment with all the changes that we're seeing in the world around us, uh, it does feel like there's this really big shift of people really going after their dreams and going after things they want to go after and not feeling that they have to um, conform um, to things that society tells them that they need to conform to, which is um, really inspiring to me, definitely. Yes, because at the end of the, of the day, you only have one life. You only get to live this once and do this right one time. And, you know, you've already ha had a certain amount of years giving giving it a go and doing it. And if it's, it, it no, no longer fulfills you, then what's the point? Especially, as you say, especially now where that's all we do. If, you know, if work is all it is, all our lives becomes, because that's what it is when you're working from home. You're doing this for 14, 16 hours and then after that is what cleaning cooking it doesn't it doesn't make sense I, I like the concept of 40 being the age of fulfillment it's almost like you're starting again from all the experience and knowledge you've gained it's like you're having a whole new life again uh, another 40 years ahead of you to live to live another life if, if you like which is actually really exciting and because we're all living longer it might mean that actually we can literally live another life now and People are stronger in their in their sixties and seventies, and 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 not retiring in the way that we used to twenty, thirty years ago. So I, I like that idea. Yeah, you don't. You no longer need to, you know, work, you know, forty years at the same job that you don't like, especially now where you can never disconnect. So you you didn't have a vision of what your life might look like at forty. Do you have a vision for what fifty might look like? I so let's see, sixty. Oof. As, as my husband would say, it might be a little spicy. My daughter will be 16, <laughs> full-fledged teen, full teenager. So it might be, yeah, a little spicy. She's already quite uh, smart when it comes to answers and right. come back and so on. So right. let's see what comes in 10 years. Um, I, I can only hope for the best, you know. I can only hope that uh, we're still healthy, that we're still here, that we're still happy and that we're still looking after If I'm talking about career, I would like to think that I would have a pretty established um, translation company, even however small for myself by then. Um, you know, the, it seems like the longer freelance people work for themselves, uh, the longer they want to keep doing it rather than going back to being employed by somebody else. That's right. Definitely. I mean, your your journey has been so very interesting and inspiring to me to hear to hear it. Um, and I guess we often forget about how how you know how difficult it can be traveling from different countries. You know, going going to build life elsewhere um, and not always knowing how that might turn out, but still trying to make the best of it and meeting positive people along the way. I think that's something that really stood out to me. Is that sometimes you can just think actually people are not going to be as open and as friendly or as kind as you might need them to be. And then you get, you get blessed with these real gifts uh, on your journey, which is amazing to hear that. Yes, yes. No, I think people are brilliant. You know, you meet lovely people along the way. It's been definitely nice. And I guess something's about the energy that you, you, you pick up from people and how that just works and translates nicely. And as I guess as, as mums, it's always been nice to meet fellow mums who have definitely been supportive. And I think that even that in itself was um, a real gift. Yeah, absolutely. I think especially when 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 we can share, you know, uh, being honest about how it's not easy sometimes. <laughs> You know? People can take it for granted. They can take it for granted that it looks easy, but actually there's, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes, right? Absolutely. A lot of, a lot of craft. But um, yeah, as long as you do it with, uh, with heart and with kindness, I think, uh, you know, you, you, you get what you give out, right? 
And I think it's um, really inspirational that you have such a positive outlook on life, generally coming from the background that you have, having the start that you did in life and not having that affect your outlook on the future and, and how you're living in the present. That, that I think is a real achievement because not many people who have come from uh, families where mental health is an issue are able to move on in their own lives because they're so caught up in how their family's been affected by it. So the fact that you are living a, a brilliant life and, and testament to um, your daughter, I guess, and, and your husband and what you've managed to build for yourselves, um, you, you should be really proud of, of what you've achieved at 40 so far. No, thank you. And I'm, I'm mostly thankful, you know, at the end of the day, however difficult my family were and so on, um, they were always you know, positive about travel, about just, you know, just widen your horizons, whatever that means. It meant nothing to me, but at the end of the day, that's what made me, you know, just giving it a go. Larry, if anyone wanted to follow you online, where would they find you to continue following that journey? If you got like uh, social media handles that you'd want anyone to, to follow you on? No, I'm not much on social media. I'm on LinkedIn. Yeah, I am. Uh, so you can find me just like with my name here, Valeria Villagra. Um, it hasn't been updated. I think I'm not, I don't have much of an online presence. That's one thing where I don't invest much time in. But yeah, LinkedIn. Well, thank you very much. I feel like we've learned so much from you today. Um, and I appreciate your time and come to speak with me and Winnie. And definitely there's no failures at 40 today. <laughs> <laughs> definitely not, not. and as Winnie said it which is perfect you know this is a new beginning we still have all this energy so absolutely go for it embracing it all so we'll definitely be trying to uh, check you out um, at 50 just to see how that translation business is coming mm-hmm. along and um, that'd be good and to see how spicy Olivia's gotten as well <laughs> failure at 40 failure at 40 at 40 at 40 at 40 at Palladia, at Palladia, at Palladia.